This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You listen to the Bite Size Business Breakfast Best Bits from Tuesday, November the 1st. Coming up, we'll hear from Peter Smith. Peter's one of the senior managers down at the DFSA, the Dubai Financial Services Authority. Uh, they've launched phase two of their new crypto token regime today. Came into a force down at the IFC. We wanted to get a bit more insight from Peter as to why this was the right time to launch the regime and just how transparent it was to potential investors. Matt Stanley was in studio as well. Matt Stanley from Kepler joined us to talk all things energy. This was, of course, the morning after the night before where we got uh, an update on what the fuel prices were doing here in the US. November to see, what, 10% increase on the previous month's cost of filling up at the pump. So we talked about that, but also how the pricing system was put in place here in light of price of a barrel of oil. IPO is very much on the agenda when it comes to the business breakfast at the moment. Uh, There seems to be no industry that's not been affected by IPOs here. The IPO rush across the UAE and further afield in recent times. We spoke to Alan Williamson, who's the CEO of Talim, uh, one of the largest educators here, uh, not just in Dubai, but across the whole of the region. They're IPOing later on this month, uh, with subscriptions becoming available from November the 10th. But as Alan explained, they're looking to do things just a little bit differently in line with the culture and the principles behind the company. Plus, in terms of discussions, no shorter discussion about the rise in the petrol price at the pump here. And there was an IMF report out overnight, which suggested that the GCC and the MENA region were in fact in a good place when it came to the global headwinds and trying to combat those global headwinds, not just through oil production, but also through the encouragement of business here. That is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The way fuel prices have gone up, uh, we are told they're just shy of 10%, three dirhams, 20 a litre of special. Uh, let's get reaction on that one now from the senior economist of Emirates NBD, Daniel Richards. This in the UAE have gone up again overnight, rising roughly 9.5% for November prices compared to the October prices. Uh, after oil prices were liberalised to better represent market dynamics, and this follows on from the higher global oil prices we saw last month compared to September. Uh, those prices, of course, were supported by the OPEC Plus decision to keep supply tighter than had originally been planned. Now, given that transport costs account for around a tenth of the Dubai CPI basket, this increase in prices at the pump will feed through into the headline inflation index. And we could see that headline price growth figure tick up once again after it had slowed over the past two months. September's inflation print was 5.4%, which was down from the 7.1% seen back in July as it benefited from the decline in petrol prices. Aside from driving the headline figure though, I think petrol prices can also have a pretty big effect on sentiment. It's a very tangible purchase given it's usually bought on its own and on a regular basis. So people know how much they pay to fill up their cars and when that goes up and down. 
Inflation here hasn't been to the same degree as seen in much of the rest of the world. And indeed, the Eurozone announced a new record high of 10.7% year on year yesterday. So domestic demand has held up well here to date, according to PMI surveys. But nevertheless, these price rises do eat into people's disposable income and could constrain consumption in the coming months. Whilst we had the ear of Daniel, I thought it was only fair to ask him about this new IMF report as well, which said that uh, uh, Gulf economies uh, needed to defend against global headwinds at the moment. Uh, the fund's regional director saying that high oil prices and business reforms uh, have supported growth. But there are a few risks on the horizon. Uh, this was Jihad Azor, the IMF director of the Middle East and Central Asia, uh, who's been talking about these uh, latest developments, uh, the IMF launching its latest regional outlook uh, for the Middle East and North Africa at an event here in the UAE yesterday. Uh, the un- overwhelming belief was that the Gulf could accelerate its economic transformation through increased participation of the private sector, stepping up said reforms, uh, such as to do with the labour market and ease of doing business, which will all add to the increase in productivity. Uh, Daniel got the opportunity to have a little look at uh, the IMF report and we asked him for the key takeaways. The key takeaway from the report is that the region as a whole was fairly resilient. But of course, it noted that there was a difference between the oil exporting countries, such as the GCC states, which are enjoying a cumulative $1 trillion windfall over 2022 to 2026, according to the IMF, and those oil importers, which are on the other end of a higher price dynamic and are being buffeted by volatile food and energy prices. The growth forecast for the region was 5% this year, showing to 3.6% next year. And that's pretty in keeping with our own projections, with a slowdown anticipated on the back of the global dynamics. High inflation and the resultant tightening monetary policy are likely to force a slowdown through most of the world, and here is not exempted. Dan Richards there, Senior Economist, Emirates NBD. OK, let's turn attention to some of the international news stories that are doing the rounds at the moment uh, and something that Brandy is calling the Daily Elon at the moment. <laughs> yeah, what will Elon do next? It's like having a toddler, isn't it? Um, but it's look, it's interesting. Is that the way we are putting it? Um, well, he's been trick-or-treating for Halloween, is what Elon has been doing next, with his mum. Um, and a lot of retweeting. So far, the big Twitter-related um, information from uh, Elon. Oh, apart from a pet wearing a Twitter T-shirt um, and a Halloween pumpkin carved with a Twitter logo. He's taking this branding quite seriously, isn't he? Um, he did tweet. Um, uh, his last sort of big Twitter-related tweet was, if I had a dollar for every time someone asked me if Trump's coming back on this platform, Twitter would be minting money. Now, what people are probably more asking this morning is two things. Number one, are you going to fire a lot of people? Um, still a lot of uh, rumours that he could be about to let go as much as 25% of the workforce in a round of cuts. Rumours that that's what um, his team and, uh, and, and engineers have been working on over the weekend. Also, questions about whether or not that coveted blue tick, that little sign of Twitter authenticity, might become something that you pay to maintain. Yeah, there has been a price tag put on that. We don't know for sure, but a lot of speculation that it could be something upwards of $19.99 per month. 
maybe, uh, to retain the double blue tick. Uh, so taking the onus away from uh, Twitter itself and making it uh, the subscriber uh, that has to maintain that status. Um, yeah, he's certainly been active, that's for sure. We saw uh, the firings on day one of the Muskera uh, when he got rid of three senior executives. Well, he's followed that up with in the last couple of days by firing Twitter's entire board of directors and appointing himself as the sole member uh, of that board at the moment. Um, he uh, has disbanded the board, uh, cementing his control over the company, but also reiterated the point that he wants to be the CEO. Um, a lot of people asking him about why he's changed his profile details to be the uh, chief twit, as he calls himself uh, at the moment. Uh, but he has confirmed that, yes, he does want to sit as the CEO, which does beg the question, I mean, how many boards can he sit on and how many companies can he be CEO of? Well, this is the thing. We know he doesn't sleep much, <laughs> but um, you're right. We all get sort of 24 hours in a day and a certain amount of attention spent. What is happening to the other projects, the tunnels, the rockets, yeah. the cars, whilst Twitter is taking up uh, what I imagine is quite a bit of headspace? And look, he was always known for the bombastic tweets before he took over Twitter, surely this is just going to add more fuel to that fire. They're just going to get more and more outrageous and bombastic as time goes on. Some speculation by analysts out there suggesting that he is filling the void that Donald Trump uh, has vacated by not being able to be on social media at the moment, which might potentially, dare we not be speaking out of tone, you know, suit someone like Elon Musk. Um... <laughs> He likes the airspace, that's for sure. Well, he's certainly getting it. That tweet earlier um, about, uh, you know, everyone's asking me if, if Trump's coming back to Twitter, um, at the moment has got 6,000 replies. Uh, 676,000 likes, um, but 60, sorry, 60,000 people have bothered to reply in a comment to that. Yeah, it's it's busy out there and the Twitter sphere at the moment uh, being fueled a lot by Mr. Musk and others. A quick one for you as well from the world of publishing. A US court has blocked uh, the $2.2 billion uh, proposed uh, merger between the world's largest book publisher, Penguin Random House, and its near rival, Simon & Schuster. In a brief order that came out yesterday, the US uh, district judge said that the deal could substantially lessen competition within the publishing industry if it were allowed to go through the US Department of Justice, filing a lawsuit to stop the deal last November. Uh, Penguin Random House formed through the merger of two major publishers from the UK and the US in 2013. So Penguin saying in a statement that it would appeal against the decision, calling it at uh, calling it an unfortunate setback for both readers and authors alike. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. The Oxford Collins Dictionary, uh, they've launched their Word of the Year um, findings earlier on today. Um, if we had the similar thing here in the UAE, or certainly in Dubai, I think IPO would be up there as one of the words of the year uh, in our headlines each and every day, and today is exactly the same. Talim, which of course is one of the largest education providers here in the Middle East, is the latest to announce their intentions uh, 
in, as such, the Dubai School Operator planning to raise in the region of 750 million dirhams from its initial public offering on the DFN, the Dubai Financial Market, next month to fund its growth plans. Uh, very kind to be joined now by the CEO of Talim, who's joined us live here in studio, Alan Williamson, to answer a few questions. Uh, I can't I can't say Alan's been called up to the headmaster's office because he's the headmaster, basically. <laughs> but Alan, thank you nonetheless for joining us this morning. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Brandy. It's a pleasure to be back. Uh, congratulations on the, uh, the announcement. Uh, all the best with the forthcoming IPO as well. Um, Give us an idea of the thinking behind the IPO and just how much you intend or certainly hope to raise. Yeah, it's clear that we uh, hope to raise $750 million in a primary offering. So it will be different from uh, a lot of the IPOs that, are, that have came to the DFM and, and the UAE. Um, we're, we're very excited by it. Uh, it's a fantastic opportunity for Talim to grow further, um, we have fantastic schools. We are doing very well in terms of a bit of growth, in terms of net profit growth. Uh, our enrolment uh, is extremely strong. And it's the right time for Talim in, in, in terms of a proud 20-year history to, to really move into a, a real growth trajectory. Um, you know, the, there's... We've been watching the IPOs and, and some are clearly dividend stories. Um, Talim will continue to uh, deliver a dividend, but this really is uh, an exciting growth story. We talk in our schools about a journey to excellence for our students. And, you know, I, I believe it's time for our corporate company to move on that journey to excellence. Can you give us an idea as to when you expect to list on the bourse on the DFM? Yes, um, it's it's later in, in the month, uh, in in the month of November. Um, obviously, there there are a lot of IPOs at the moment, and, and ESCA will 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 determine that. Will it be? Will the the, the the opportunities be open to all UAE citizens and residents? Yeah, it's very interesting. We're taking quite an innovative uh, approach to this. So there's three tranches. Um, so there will obviously be uh, the retail tranche. We we expect um, that you know the UAE population will buy into uh, the Talim story. Then obviously you've got your investor tranche. But but what's unique about this, and we're particularly proud of it, is that our parents and our employees will, will also be given an opportunity to invest in the company. Um, you know, the, the, there's so much talk in, in Dubai and Abu Dhabi about, say, not-for-profit schools. Um, uh, this is a, a unique opportunity for our parents to become part of the Talim story. You know, they invest in, the, in their children's education, and, and our employees and our parents can now become part of the, the corporate story of Talim. So, you know, we, we were founded for all the right reasons 20 years ago. We, we wanted to improve the quality of education mm. in the UAE, but we also, interestingly, were founded to allow investment in education. And I just think it's fantastic that 20 years on from that, 
we're taking that to the next level. Well, I find it interesting as well because quite often we get you know details through about the IPA and we're told which boss they're going to go with and uh, how much it's going to whether it's going to be book building or what the show's going to go out, etc. And yet you guys are talking already about what you're going to do with the money that you hope to raise as well. You're making no qualms about the fact that you want to build more schools. Yeah, and I think that is a reflection of of Talim. We we truly and genuinely believe in our our brands. Schools like Dubai British School, Emirates Hills, Dubai British School, Jumeirah Park. If you take Raha International School in Abu Dhabi, it's the only all through IB outstanding school in the UAE. So with the outstanding Dubai British School and the outstanding Raha School, we believe that parents want this. We've got waiting lists to show that. Um, one thing that Talim have always been uh, focused on is also affordability. So we offer premium best value education um, to uh, an aspirational middle class. And you know we genuinely believe that that product should be available to more people. Um, I could fill Dubai British School over and over and over again. I could fill Raha over and over again. Um, and, and parents and obviously students want that offering. And, and that's what this IPO is about. Uh, looking at the, the, the dates that have been put forward, subscription opening on 10th of November, is that about right? Yes, that's correct. Okay, yeah. uh, and we'll be open for a week or so as well, closing around about the 16th or 17th. Just what we've got one minute left in terms of potential investors out there having a little think about there. I mean, that age-old adage, isn't it? You know, to buy uh, good times and bad times, the two industries that do well, healthcare and education. And it is your fundamental belief that the education will grow here in the region, will it? Absolutely. I mean, you've nailed it, Tom. Uh, Education is a defensive sector. Um, In many ways, Talim are even more defensive in that 65% of our student cohort is Emirati, and we're very, very proud of that. Yeah, look, we believe the premium sector is still growing. Um, We don't operate in the super premium. You know, we don't charge 95,000 dirhams to our parents, our sweet spot of price point means it is affordable to aspirational parents. And, you know, this place is booming. Mm. Yeah, every, Everybody on the show today has been talking about that. Dubai's booming. Abu Dhabi's booming. The UAE is buffering the macroeconomic situation. And we believe there is real uh, headroom for growth in this mm. industry. Alan, all the best. Um, it's going to be a busy month anyway. It's just got a bit busier for you and your team at Talim. But thank you so much indeed for coming in and telling us a few more details yeah, about it. Th- thank you for inviting me on. It's always a pleasure. Kind thank of you, you to come on and, and tell us more. Uh, Alan Williamson is the CEO of Talim, who just announced the more details of their IPO. November the 10th is when these subscriptions will be open. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We are going to look at those fuel price rises in a little bit more detail. Very pleased to be joined now by the energy expert, Matt Stanley, the Middle East Partnership Lead at Kepler. Matt, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning. Morning, Brady. So we're up about 10%-ish, just a smidgen under. What were you expecting? I mean, again, I got it wrong. Um, every single time I predict anything, I seem to get it wrong. But um, no, look, it's, whether it's healthy, you mentioned earlier on about you know high oil prices are good for fiscal budgets within the GCC core, especially for us for reinvestment. Um, but the effect on the end user is obviously quite profound. Um, 
when you look at this year, the last year, I mean, look, this time last year, WTI, the, the US benchmark, crude oil benchmark, was trading at $84. This morning, it's trading $87. So when you look at things, you know, look at the wood for the trees, oil prices um, have been volatile this year, to say the least, um, but have been relatively stable over the last 12 months. Now, whether that maintains, I don't know. Gasoline prices um, have been Gasoline, as part of the crude oil barrel, we call make, making up the, the total part of the barrel, whether it's diesel or LPG, propane, stuff that we all use, gasoline has been relatively weak this year because of recessionary headwinds. Um, demand has been, has been relatively weak in, in, West, in the Western world, um, and the EU is certainly detaching itself from the rest of the world in terms of a demand hub. Um, but here, look... It's it's I, I I sadly I think that it will go up higher. Ne- it will go. It will increase next month as well. Excuse me, um, but ten percent. I mean, oil prices in general have increased ten percent on on crude oil futures markets at least. Gasoline prices have increased a little bit more. So I think um, the public should be prepared. Okay, well that's your opinion, and we underline that that is an opinion. Yes, other opinions are available. Um, but the reason we've got you in here because you do track um, the the futures, don't you? The mm. you look at the what's happening to U.S. gasoline. How closely are we now tracking those international prices? Oh, the, uh, the you know the if you extrapolate the chart, it's, it's totally linear. Um, you know, the one thing when the subsidies were lifted here within the UAE was that we track global oil prices and what they're doing. Now, you can get technical and say whether we track crude oil prices or we're tracking gasoline prices. Essentially, it's a, it's a balanced um, basket that we look at, um, you know, and how the, how the prices are set. I don't know officially, so I'm not talking on, on behalf of anyone, but um, essentially we track, uh, say, a 90% correlation to what's happening with the rest of the, rest of the world. And where are petrol prices or gas prices, if you're American, heading in the rest of the world? Well, I was in the States two weeks ago. Um, they were $4 a gallon, which is pretty expensive compared to this time last year. That's, that's almost, a, it's almost a doubling from this time last year. Um, but people were out there spending money. So I think it's, you know, people have got and have been talking about this recession that's happening in Q4. We're... We're a third of the way through Q4. I don't see people spending less money. I don't see people traveling less. In fact, places like India, you know, that's gasoline demand is at a record high. We, we anticipate gasoline demand next month to get to 850,000 barrels a day in India, which is a record high. Back to pre-COVID levels, same as the US. Um, China is obviously the anomaly in the market. People have, which, which has disrupted quite a few people's outlooks because perhaps people have been a bit too complacent on exponential growth within China. So when it's, um, you know, with its zero COVID policy, it has affected people's outlook somewhat. But the rest of the world, um, EU aside, like I said, excuse me, the Middle East is booming, um, will continue to do so. People want to move here. Look at what's happened with petrol prices, why Lewis Alsop was so happy yesterday. Um, But the US as well, that's 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 somewhat of a fractured uh, recovery, but it, essentially that's booming as well, and and petrol prices will continue an upward trajectory. Because this brings us into the question of what people in your industry call demand destruction, don't they? At, mm. at what point do people curtail their activities, change their habits? We were talking about it more maybe June and July when when petrol prices in the US were hitting um, record highs. But if stuff gets tighter economically, will mm. we? 
see people changing the way they they move around does what counts as demand destruction change when the economy changes no that's a that's a really good point and that's one that needs to be addressed because people think that the problem with high prices are high prices themselves demand destruction we don't see it at all in mobility if you were to <clears throat> answer that question and harness it with one answer and one economic indicator it would be mobility and how people are getting about and whether they want to get around and how often they are doing it, mobility is back to where it was pre-COVID. People are not concerned. Well, sorry, they are. They're looking ever more at budgets. Um, but you know, unemployment globally is at a record low. If you're facing a recession um, with record low unemployment, well, that doesn't really fit in with a recessionary argument. Um, look, demand destruction. We are seeing it in certain pockets of the world, East Africa, for example, which is a. You, I would say that that's. <clears throat> excuse me, is one of the last frontiers to grow um, where people are really going to start Mozambique, Kenya, Tanz- Tanzania, etc. They are really growth spots for oil demand. That has, that has fallen away. Demand there has fallen away because people are feeling financial pressures. They're growing economies. Rest of the world, absolutely no problem. Okay. We've only got a couple of minutes left with you. It's November now. This Mm. is the month that OPEC Plus is going to bring in um, those unexpected cuts. Um, It's the largest cut since the beginning of the pandemic. What is that going to to mean for oil supply and prices? There's a couple of things. Um, One, OPEC have been underproducing for a while. So there is is the, the bottom line that they've got on production numbers and there's how much they're actually producing. There are laggards within the group. Nigeria, for example, have been have been struggling, but the you know investment there is slowly coming, so that should make that should that should uh, grow again. Um, OPEC have done an extraordinary job in balancing markets. The dynamic of the group is to balance supply and demand, um, and not for one that has got an outright price agenda, as much as people have been writing about and been talking about. It, 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 you know, there there is maybe something there, but fu- you know, fundamentally. Um, the group is there to balance supply and demand. GCC Core have been the people who have picked up the slack, Saudi and the UAE, Kuwait and Iraq, you know, as, a, as the four main producers. Um, the, the cuts were 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 expected, um, but no, look, the group the group has done a fantastic job, will continue to do so. And as Almas Ruiz Excellency said yesterday at Adipec, they are one phone call away. It's a song apparently. Matt Stanley, Middle East Partnerships Lead at Kipler. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Your last five seconds. Give us a price outlook. Give them. For when? Short to medium. Christmas. Um, 110 by Christmas, 120 by NQ1, and then uh, gloves off. Wow. Punchy. Sorry. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. So a new chapter uh, opens this morning down at Dubai International Financial Centre. Why? Because uh, the DFSA, the Dubai Financial Services Authority's crypto token regime comes into force today. Forms the second phase of DFA's, DFSA's work uh, in this area following the introdu- introduction of a regime within the IFC for the regulation of investment tokens. That was back in October 2021. This is the uh, update on that. Let's get to the thoughts now of the Managing Director, Head of Strategy, Policy and Risk at the DFSA, Peter Smith, who's been kind enough to join us live in studio. Peter, thanks for your time this morning. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. Good morning. Let's take a little step back, if we can, because this is a very comprehensive regime that you and your team have put in place. What's the 
What's the intention of the crypto token regime? Well, I, I think the the intention of, of the this new uh, opportunity, I think we should describe it as, um, is is similar to much of what what we do. We're uh, we're a regulator, so our job is to try and make sure that customers are protected, markets work well, uh, financial stability is, is protected. But we also have a role to facilitate new business and new ideas, uh, and also a role to facilitate innovation. And obviously, in the crypto area, what we're doing is very much in line with the vision that the Dubai government has set out, and indeed the, um, the DIFC authorities' future of finance strategy, which uh, is, is driving the whole uh, currently very rapid growth of, of the DIFC as a financial centre. So we're playing our part in that by introducing a regime that will allow people to do crypto-related business in or from the DIFC. It is interesting, because you mentioned the, the fast pace of the evolution when it comes to all things crypto at the moment. And I know you've been well ahead of this curve. You and your team have been talking about it for a long time as well, putting together this. And we mentioned the first the first phase coming back in in October 2021. But what, what do consumers demand when it comes to protection from crypto? Well, I, I think one of the issues at the moment is that consumers think most crypto firms actually are regulated, uh, when in fact the truth is that they're not. And clearly many co uh, consumers are, are engaging directly with all sorts of, of, of crypto firms. So I, I think there's, there's um, uh, what consumers are demanding in terms of their experience in that area is, is ease of use, ease of service and, and, and access to markets. Um, what, what consumers want, though, is to understand that those companies are well run and that they're run um, not entirely 110% in the interests of, of the company, that they have an eye to the fact that consumers do need protecting, that people can overextend themselves, that some people shouldn't be in markets, um, and, and, and that the, the companies themselves are putting products and making services available to people in a way that is, is clear, is fair, is not misleading, so, so that there is transparency for the consumer around what it is they're actually getting into. Um, so when we, when we do have discussions with consumers, that's what we find that they want. Um, I say at the moment, one of the issues is a lot of people think they've got that, and in fact, they haven't. Hmm. You make an interesting point, because we think of some of the challenges that people have had with financial services in the past, not saying anything specifically here, but and, and that's demanded regulation. And if we look at that as sort of being traditional financial services, and yet you look at cryptocurrencies, and as you say, the, the assumption is that people just say, oh, where can I buy them? But are people not thinking about the sort of the wider scope of financial services or cryptocurrency services? I mean, I, I think a lot of people have been caught up in what I think we, we've all seen is a, is a pretty uh, powerful wave, a lot of momentum uh, into the crypto area. Uh, people younger than me talk about fear of missing out and, 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 <laughs> and, so, and so on. And, 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 I, and I think um, that consumers have just seen this as, as a new opportunity. They've seen some of the extraordinary, frankly, uh, increases in prices that have happened with, with, with certain uh, of, of the things that are, that are available in the crypto market. And, and I think that has tended to outweigh people's um, perhaps more, more general thoughts about, about financial services or about what they're actually getting into. Is the demand for transparency greater when it comes to crypto tokens or not? I think it actually, I think it actually is because there is less understanding. And um, I, I think, to be fair to the industry, that there is actually some quite good consumer education materi material out there um, explaining how these things work uh, and explaining what, uh, you know, what, what wallets and keys and, and things of this sort actually are. Um, 
so so I, but I think um because it's new um it's it's one of those things where we're going to force a great degree of transparency mm. um because we think it, it's necessary for people to 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 explain how they do things to explain what they're doing uh, uh, with consumers uh investments and so on and just finally, Peter, I mean, uh, we mentioned that this is the second phase yeah. uh, of the process as well. Is that therefore a done deal or given the nature of cryptos? Is this a work in progress? Yeah, it's always a work in progress. And in this area, well, regulation is always a work in progress, but in this area more than others. Um, we've already said in a, the feedback statement we published to the its stakeholders a couple of weeks ago, we're going to be seeing more on staking. We're going to be seeing more on decentralized finance uh, and we're going to say more on other issues and, and no doubt the market over the next six to 12 months, we'll throw up some other things that we need to say more about as well. But we're looking forward to working with firms who want to come and do business in the DIFC. And just finally, 30 seconds. I mean, we mentioned that this is a new world for many of us at the moment. Uh, international best standards, best working standards are something that worked. we've worked on in the past. Are you sharing this information with other... Yeah, so we're heavily engaged with regulators in lots of other countries, and we've learned from the experience of, of people who are further ahead of them we are in, in, in a whole range of places including so, uh, the New York Department of Financial Services and Bermuda Monetary Authority and people scattered around the globe so there's a lot of conversation going on at the moment we haven't got to the stage where there is an international standard mm. that everyone can make use of we'll get to that point at some point as long as the industry slows down enough to enable <laughs> us to do that um, but but you know it, it is it is something where we're all all regulators are on a learning curve so we're all sharing as much experience as we can with each other We'll need to take a breath at the moment. Uh, Peter, thank you so much indeed. Uh, all the best with uh, the new phase uh, of the uh, regime. Peter Smith is the Managing Director, Head of Strategy, Policy and Risk at the DFSA, the crypto token regime, coming into force today. Our thanks to Peter. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.